Hello and welcome to the Engineers Collective, a podcast by New Civil Engineer. New Civil Engineer launched the Engineers Collective back in 2019, and since then we have welcomed many guests into the virtual studio to talk about a wide variety of civil engineering topics, including Crossrail, Future Skills, Digital Twins, Net Zero, Learning from Accidents, Digital Construction, and more. You can listen to the entire back catalogue of the podcast by subscribing to the Engineers Collective now. If you enjoy listening to today's episode, don't forget you can leave us a review in the podcast client of your choice. To share the podcast with your colleagues, simply visit newcivilengineer.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to this latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor of New Civil Engineer and your host for today's episode where we're going to be looking back at just how far the construction industry has come in terms of adopting new technology. Joining me on that journey, we have Keith Bentley, who has just retired from the post of Chief Technology Officer at Bentley Systems, a firm he founded with his brother Barry almost 40 years ago in 1984. Keith was the principal architect of the company's technology directions and is the primary inventor on numerous company patents. He has served as a director and an executive officer since Bentley's inception and was the company's president until 1995 and CEO until 2000. He holds a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from the University of Delaware and a master's degree also in electrical engineering from the University of Florida. So welcome to the Engineers Collective, Keith. Thank you very much for having me, Claire. It's great to be here. Great to have you. So I'd like to start by setting the scene about what technology used by engineers looked like when you first graduated. So my stepkids think I'm making up that when in 1997 I was a fresh engineering graduate, we had one PC between four engineers. I had a secretary to type up my reports, no mobile phone, just a stack of 10Ps for the phone box. And the main form of communication was faxes and letters. How was it for you when you started work? Well, Clara, I'll tell you, uh, you may think that that sounds old, but I'm even older and when I started, there was no such thing as PCs. In fact, computers were something that were shared by an entire organization, and only a very few exalted people managed to even have, at the time, what was called a terminal on their desk. So when I first started, there was no computer. I had to walk to get to a computer. And while you were you know, in meetings or out of the office, you used to come back and you'd get a stack of pink while you were out cards you probably don't even remember those oh no no i used to get those too (laughs) so yeah technology at the time i started which was in 1981 when i had my first job uh, it was you know computers were a thing that only a very few individuals within an organization uh, were able to to access and the concept of a personal computer was uh, unheard of. So tell me about your first job as a graduate. What was it you were doing? How different do you think that would be now if you had the technology we have today? Well, I have to tell you that uh, I, uh, I graduated with a master's degree in electrical engineering. And of course, if you have a degree in electrical engineering, there's lots of different disciplines within electrical engineering. But I focused in, uh, in my graduate uh, on uh on computers and so when i took my first job they said electrical engineer um what would you like to do and i said computers and they said and and this was for a company called dupont where my father worked for his entire career he was a, a mechanical engineer and they said computers huh well we had this group 
that works on computers is called the CAD group, and maybe you'd like to work there. And I said, great, I'd love to. What's it stand for? And I didn't, literally had no idea about computer-aided. The D at the time was drafting. So my first job was to work on trying to optimize some of the processes of uh, a computer system that created draft uh, pieces of paper. Uh, it was just automating drafting. And that you know job was rewarding and fun, but uh, it was only a very small part. You know, the, the company's mission, DuPont, the company I worked for, was to manufacture chemicals. And I worked on a subset of a subset of a subset. And I kind of felt like, well, I would really like to, to work on something that is the company's business. And so at the time, my brother Barry uh, was in graduate school, and he had a crazy idea to start a software company. And he and his roommates uh, created this software company to sell software for Apple II computers, which if you remember at the time, they hard to glorify them as a personal computer. But what they did was automate the process of acquiring data for chemistry applications. And so I decided to leave my job in the CAD department and went to work for my brother uh, in his software company. Well, he wasn't even full-time. He was a graduate student. Anyway, selling software uh, was a, a, a radical idea back then, you know, the idea that you could make money uh, for creating you know, something that somebody couldn't even see was kind of weird. But chemistry software really turned out not to be the greatest thing we sold to uh, research organizations, and they didn't have great budgets. Meanwhile, the software that I had worked on for DuPont, the company that I took my first job, I only worked there for a year, uh, they started asking me to improve some of the software that I had written while I was working for them. Anyway, that uh, became the beginnings of Bentley Systems, I negotiated a deal with DuPont to take the software that I'd written for DuPont and commercialize it, and then we started Bentley Systems. So that was 1984, before the PC really even existed, to tell you the truth. So it's really hard to relate the technology we have today with what you were doing back then, because it was very, very basic what you were trying to do. Exactly, yes. We were, we were thrilled if you could get, you know, a piece of paper to look exactly like a human could draw it. And, um, you know, the objective of the software was to not, you know, to, to automate that process best, best as possible. People, people have very low expectations for it. And so, yeah, it was, it was a simpler time. That's for darn sure. So that's what inspired you to form Bentley. How did you end up creating software for the construction sector rather than being the chemical sector? Well, we started out uh, just drafting, and at the time, you know, if you wrote software for for creating uh, pictures, essentially drawings on pieces of paper, you don't care so much <laughs> what the drawing is of. And so, at the beginning, we really had very little, uh, you know, understanding of the content of the information that was that was created to generate paper. So. Uh, then as it became clearer that maps were different than, you know, structural drawings from dimension drawings, from isometric drawings. So there was all different types of 
information and the tools that people wanted to create that data varied. So we started becoming more interested in understanding the engineering process, the, the concepts that were being designed and documented. Generally, CAD went from computer-aided drafting to computer-aided documentation. And then it became something called computer-aided design. We kept the th same three letters and just <laughs> changed the meaning. But when it became computer-aided design, then we started thinking about, well, okay, let's try to make it that the concepts that you use to express the information that you want to you want to generate drawings of, uh, it, it would make a difference if it were, you know, something about the, where the units are uh, in feet. Uh, or if it, you know, if it is something where you're talking about something on the scale of an Earth, something on the size of an Earth, or something that you're modeling that's going to be this large, and ultimately we we kind of just determine that you can't work on things that are millimeter scale and many decameters, scale, you know, at the same time. The same software didn't work, and we kind of picked the what we now call infrastructure. It wasn't really described as that in the beginning, but we we kind of said hey you know we, we we want things that have a fixed location on the earth and that's how bentley started focusing on what we now call our infrastructure projects so what were your aims for the infrastructure sector when you started out did you have sort of any idea of where you were going to go well you know at the beginning things like mapping were, was hard you know just trying to document what exists out there and surveying you know that people had all kinds of ways to collect information sometimes and then it started to be automated and then there were tools to collect data you know the, the information became digital even in the field and so when we started realizing that okay that the types of models that you create in in the beginning they were almost always 2d but not not only 2d but you could document you know what exists out in the field using concepts that were beyond just what a drafts person, you know, if you were thinking in terms of paper units, you would, you know, you're always thinking in your mind, scale factors and so forth. But when you're, when you're trying to, to document what something, you know, exists on the earth, the curvature of the earth and, you know, lots of other factors come into play. And so our software had to get smarter and smarter and uh, more sophisticated. Like I said, smarter is not, not, correct term for soft software is not smart it's sophisticated people are smart so uh, we started focusing more and more on the types of problems that the end users had versus just the output which was at the time always paper so i guess you at that point you didn't ever imagine a world that would become totally digital rather than having any paper oh absolutely not yeah the the whole goal of the process you know even when it was computer-aided design, I'm now talking in the 90s and maybe even the early 2000s, um, you know, the, the process was always think in terms of real-world entities, but then, you know, phase, there was always a delivery phase. So you would, you would use the computer, you'd, you'd use, interact with things in, in real-world terms, but you would always generate documents, drawings, hey, documents eventually became electronic, but an electronic document is still a document. It's still a, a piece of electronic paper, but it's still paper. So, you know, as the process became more sophisticated, the you know, anomaly that 
we would do, do all this very complicated work and have lots of information in the computer, but then spew it out to drawing sets. That's, you know, that became the goal at one point, you know, over time. But at the beginning, that's not, you know, the, the, the output of every computer program was paper. So going back to the early days, what do you think the biggest barriers were that you faced in, in getting the architecture, engineering, construction firms to adopt technological solutions? And how have those barriers perhaps changed over the years? Well, our barriers were that we were not experts. I, I'm an electrical engineer. I know nothing about civil engineering or uh, n- nothing. I, I have no experience with it. My brother, Barry, was a chemical engineer. We hired another brother, Ray, who's a mechanical engineer. And so, so you collected everything but civil engineers together. Exactly. <laughs> and, we, and, and we kind of decided that's what we, where we wanted to focus our efforts. So we sort of started to realize that we were pretty good at software. You know, I, we know how to make a computer work, but we don't really know how uh, civil engineering and structural engineering. We, so we started uh, a, a very, you know, kind of important phase of our company where we started doing acquisitions of the people who were experts in those things. And I think if you look at Bentley Systems trajectory, uh, it, it took a very uh, important and positive uh, inflection when we started recognizing that you can't be an expert in everything and um, it's it's a waste of time to try to you know do all the things uh, at the same time. So we started doing acquisitions of organizations, companies that were very good at those things. And so we acquired roadway design packages and civil engineering packages and structural engineering, you know, companies that did that. And that that gave us two very strong advantages. One is a, you know, a, a set of programs that solve those kinds of problems pretty well because we picked the ones that we thought were, were best at it. And then the second very wonderful attribute it gave us is people who are really good and really smart. And, you know, software is really, you know, I, I say a software company's assets walk out the door every night, you know. Now, now they don't even come in the door physically, but it's it's really just people. And very smart people can solve very hard problems. Uh, and if you know, you know, kind of the context of the problem, you've got a great leg up on it. And so we, we've grown by acquisition. And that was a, a wonderful thing that uh, we did, we kind of decided to do relatively early on. We pro- we probably said ten years before we did our first acquisition, but we've done one hundred fifty of them since. So, so you're getting the right products there. But what do you think the barriers were in terms of adoption? What what well, what okay. challenges yeah. did the in- industry present to you in terms of if you got the great software? Were they reluctant or did yes? They... So you know the the thing about. Uh, what we now call infrastructure projects. I, I don't know if that term really you know, resonates with people when I when I refer to a building as an infrastructure project or a plant as an infrastructure project. But when, when you talk about things that are large enough that they occupy a position on the earth and don't move, right, they have a long life cycle. Both the asset, you know, you build something, you mean for it to last, typically. Uh, and the projects are long-lived. So... You know, when you when you add innovation into that and you say, oh, okay, now there's a better way of doing it. Well, at what point do you start? And so I think the barrier, typical barrier to adoption is everyone knows that innovation helps, right? And in the abstract, innovation is a good idea. But not all, you know, not all change is good. But I think most people recognize that they need to start 
you know, revising their their workflows. But it's a hard thing when, you know, you're in the middle of one multi-year project to say, okay, let's start doing something different. Or let's start that next project using a different technology set or version, even versions of software. So, you know, change is slow. And uh, technology adoption, necessarily, I mean, people are risk adverse. Engineers are risk adverse. That's a good thing. That's, that, you know, you, you, you wouldn't uh, want a, you know, uh, reckless engineer, but risk adverse and innovation, you know, kind of willing to innovate don't have to be mutually exclusive. And so sm- slow, continual change is what kind of we focused on. And I think we added new technology and new uh, solutions to existing ones so that people wouldn't have to ever have that big breaking point and start over. So, so a, anyway, a grudge, I, I just think... Evolution. Yeah. Entropy, you know, uh, the, the the concept that everything's always, you know, going to be different all the time and the idea that, okay, but you want something that stays the same, you know, so that you can you can rely on something and if everything goes wrong, you go back to the old ways. That's the kind of the innovation model that uh, engineers like. So those barriers that existed have are still the same, but they're just gradually moving. They're just slightly different barriers, slightly different technology. I, I still think workflow is the biggest barrier. You know, like people are used to, you know, a, a sequence of, you know, the decision steps and, you know, a sign-offs. And a lot of innovation is stifled by, you know, just the, the concept of risk adverse and litigation adverse. You know, people have contract Projects have contracts that govern how they should be, they should operate. And after the fact... When anything goes wrong, you know, <laughs> you go back to, okay, this is what the contract said. This is what the deliverable, uh, you know. And so changing, innovating in the ways that the contract reads is very hard. And, you know, we are starting to see, and I do think there is a horizon where the the, the new approach on contracting is going to be different than in the past. But, you know, people need to be able to defend themselves. I, I, I did what I was, you know. I was meant to do, and you know, my my part of the very large problem uh, didn't cause. Yeah, my my contribution isn't what caused you know whatever the negative outcome would be. So anyway, innovation around workflows is a hard thing, okay. and technology changes all the time, so it's not easy. Yeah, it's not an easy one to solve that. So looking back at all the patents that list you as a primary inventor, which one are you most proud of, and which one do you think made the most difference? Well, I guess I, I, I'm not even really sure I could tell you what, you know, I'm sure I'm the primary inventor on dozens of patents, but, you know, I kind of hate patents. Patents are a necessary evil in the software business. You know, patents don't ever, you don't innovate through patents. You innovate and then you patent, but it's kind of like, you know, nuclear weapons. We have to have them because they have them. So it's sort of a, you know, a defense mechanism to, to say, okay, well, what we do, we have to patent so that if someone else, you know, tries to assert that we're infringing on their patent, we have something else. So anyway, I, I just don't think about patents as being a metric that I, I'm proud, you know, proud of all the stuff that we've done. If you ask me what technology have I, has I worked on that ended up in a patent, there's a lot of it, but uh, it's all kind of lower level stuff that 
you know, it doesn't make good dinner time conversation because nobody cares. Okay. Anyway, I've worked on the lower levels of the technology stack that we use to build, uh, you know, the, the, the products that people do really cool stuff with. But my, my contribution is so low that <laughs> nobody cares. Oh, I doubt that. But let's turn around. <laughs> Which development at, the, at Bentley's are you most proud of? Perhaps has made the well, biggest difference, biggest step change people, for the industry. Yeah. So as I've come to the to, to retiring, and, and people have, I've, I've been asked that question several times over the past months, and I've always said, well, the most interesting project I've ever worked on is whatever I'm currently working on, <laughs> I mean, and that really literally has been true since the biggest for, for, for 40 years. I've always been excited about what we're currently working on. So if you ask me now, I'm going to tell you. Our iTwin project is the best thing we've ever done. I think it's the best thing. Uh, well, I have very strong and biased opinions on the technology directions and futures for our industry, but something like iTwin is a huge breaking point, in my opinion, for how we can break out of this, you know, kind of never-ending cycle of, of not, not, not making our engineering contribution be as valuable as it can be throughout the entire project's life cycle. So anyway, iTwin is a great thing in my opinion. <laughs> and I've had a lot to do with the design of it and, and even some of the implementation of it. So it'd be interesting to watch that one develop. But with the growth of Bentley over the last four decades, it, it must seem to some people that the gains have come very naturally to the business. But is there anything you do differently if you were starting over again? Well, probably, probably many things I'd do differently if, in hindsight, if I could go back and, and know, uh, you know, kind of the way the industry uh, moved. One, one of the problems that I think every kind of success, Bentley Systems, we've done fine. So you, I have no complaints about where I've ended up after 40 years. But you could always say, hey, it could have come out, could have come out better. And many of our competitors have beat us on, on lots of things. So... I, one of the problems that I think that successful organizations have is just, you know, the flywheel turns and it's very hard to say, okay, now's the time to do something different. And innovation, when, you're, when things are going well, it's really hard to say, okay, but we should be doing something different. I remember back at the, the dawn of the internet, remember back in those days when there was dot-com everything, and I remember seeing things like YouTube and thinking to myself, my God, that's a gold mine. And, you know, why am I working on this CAD crap, you know? <laughs> why don't we just stop and, and focus on, you know, I don't know, videos or, I don't know. But, and, and certainly, if I could wind the clock back, I think I would. But we didn't. And, uh, you know, I remember seeing uh, the beginning of the, the first web browser I ever saw and the first web search engine I saw. I went home and I was like stunned. I was like, wow, that's going to be the future. Did I ever do anything about it? No. <laughs> right? You know, we just kept working on what we were always working on. So I think we, we probably would have innovated even more aggressively. I think we would have done more acquisitions earlier. I think that would have made a big, bigger difference for Bentley Systems. I think we should have gone, gotten into uh, some of our vertical uh, solutions earlier and we would have been better off. But you know, we were we also tried mechanical engineering for a while, and that turned out to be a big waste. But 
waste for us. I mean, lots of other people have made a lot of money at it, but we lost a lot of focus for, for a period of time when we didn't know what we wanted to work on. So anyway, hindsight's twenty twenty, and uh, I'm sure everyone would like to wind the clock back and have a couple of do-overs. But all, all things considered, I'm pretty happy about where, where we came out. You certainly live and learn. But talking, going on to talk about successes, it must be lovely to watch the judging for the Going Digital Awards and the, at the Year in Infrastructure event each year and see how many firms are improving their project delivery using the tools that you've created. But has there been a standout project for you that's really taken things to the next level? Well, there's been many of them, and, and I just want to say that, you know, a software company like ours is nothing unless we manage to find people to use it, help them be successful with it, and we live in the reflected glory of what they manage to do with our, our software. So you talk about the your infrastructure awards and the going digital. I, I, I love sitting in the back of a room and listening to someone give a presentation about the you know complicated pro- pro- the projects they work on, I'd have absolutely no clue how do you get you know if I was a member of that project I would be completely lost and yet they manage to find ways to solve very complicated problems. Sometimes the problems are technology problems, sometimes they're society problems. I remember sitting and listening to people give presentations a couple of years ago about how COVID you know the, all of a sudden they had to work all virtually and then, you know, from zero to 100% virtual. And, you know, you sit in the back of that room and in awe, really. And I, I sometimes listen to them give their description about how they solve very complicated problems. Sometimes the problems are software, you know, like sometimes the, the, the problem they're solving is that the software didn't work the way they wished for it to work. And I sit there and I generally, you know, get get on the phone with our product managers and I say, why is this company having so much? But anyway, there's been so many of them. I, I hate to single out a single uh, one of them if you're asking me to pick one because... Go on, uh, go on, pick one. There must be one. Well, uh, you know, the, the, the ones last year, um, there, there's a project in Singapore that where they did a waste, wastewater treatment plant, uh, huge project and massive uh, amount of data. And the people that worked on that project, they just managed to figure out ways to get every problem, you know, make every problem tractable, which I kind of, in my mind, think, wow, I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> anyway, so that one was last year's. Uh, two years ago, you know, it would have been a railway, you know, in somewhere in Asia. And I sit there and I, I, I think to myself, wow. That's a really cool project. It's going to make a bunch of people's lives a lot better. And we had, you know, three levels of indirection. We we had some influence in it, and uh, that that makes you feel pretty good. But but, I mean, it's kind. I I feel like I'm I'm sitting there watching a symphony, and I'm thinking to myself, "Hey, I made the machine that made the instrument." You know, (laughs) like (laughs) I don't know anything about music, but I can make the you know a machine that makes a, a. trombone <laughs> anyway that's that's the level of indirection that uh, Bentley feels when we when our users do wonderful things with our products and, and of course it must be said they don't only use our products they use many other products as well but it's kind of cool great but like all true engineers you haven't completely retired and you still work for Bentley in the role of a technology advisor but Julian Moot has taken over as chief technology officer so it must be great for him to have you still in the background for support so what's your advice from going forward, apart from creating a time machine to go back to the dawn of the internet and change all of that? What's your other advice to him? 
Well, yeah, we're, we're very fortunate to have found Julian. Uh, I spent the last oh, year and a half since he started meeting with him very frequently to try to explain to Julian kind of you know, why things are the way they are at Bentley. But he's a very quick study, and I have no doubt that Julian will figure out ways to solve lots of problems that, you know, the, that, that the, the next phase of innovation will, will have. But I, I, I just would make sure my input is the only regrets I've ever had is about not trying things rather than, you know, sometimes you try things and they're wrong and you waste some time, you raise some money, but you learn something. So I think if my, I could suggest anything to Julian, it's be, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't wait too long before there's you know, a clear path. We have to make the path. And I think there's a lot of, of opportunity out there. This, this concept of digital twins, which, you know, it, we're at the beginning of. I mean, I, I, I know 10 years from now, people will chuckle about, you know, the state of the art in 2023. But digital twins and I think combined with machine learning and artificial intelligence are going to complete, you know, 10 years from now, add up all the change that's happened since the beginning of, well, certainly since the beginning of the computer up to today and extrapolate 10 years from now, I bet you it's going to be, uh, the, the area under that curve is going to be higher in the future. Just because the concept of, you know, information modeling and, you know, we, we, we went to this phase called BIM, right, where, the idea was that the information model could be, you know, something that you could, you could ask it questions and get answers that you didn't know, right? In, in the CAD world, it was just documentation. You simply tell, told the computer what you wanted it and it showed it back to you. But in BIM, the idea was you have an information model. But unfortunately, the world of BIM ended at the end of the project. You just took the BIM file and you know, made a, an archive of it, but nobody could ever use it because BIM was tied to the BIM modeling tool. Mm-hmm. In digital twins, the theory is that there is no, you know, boundary. You know, there's no deliverable. You don't have to decide, okay, now I'm going to archive the information model and generate the operations, you know, tool chest. They can be continuous. And just think about the, the, how liberating that can be. First of all, I think you have way more input during the design phase. Like you can, you can rely on information that's coming from either real time or archive time. Uh, you can have sensors out in the field that, you know, kind of combine that information model with the real model, the real thing. And so the concept of a twin, it's not radical. Of course, we didn't make it up, but it's transformative. And so we don't really have that today, unfortunately. Most most projects, they, they twin something, but the output of the project is still the contract documents because right? that's the way people get paid today. But I think there's a lot of innovation going on, particularly in the UK, around the information model being the contract you know, vehicle, the way you measure performance and you know, resolve disputes, and certainly... I think if you can use the information model as the exchange vehicle for kind of conveying what you want, 
right? <laughs> so you model it before you build it and you, you know, change the model after during the, the construction phase, the scheduling phase. Anyway, so I think a digital twin is a, a great idea, no matter how it's implemented, right? That target is the the way forward. It's not the not the norm of today. But that and then combine with uh, you know, Chat GPT. Anybody who hasn't played with Chat GPT is you know, just missing a huge opportunity. But the, the input to Chat GPT is all the text in the world, right? You know, they 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 scraped all the web pages in the world and, and, and all the documents that they could read the, the the text. Engineering models are not text. We need Chat GPT. For digital twins and that of course will happen whether it's bentley or someone else or probably it's everybody's going to do that and 10 years from now i mean the pace of innovation around ai is staggering mm. like it's huge i drive a car it? that uh, attempts to drive itself and yeah it doesn't do a great job today but it does a way better job than it did a year ago and a year from now i'm sure it's going to be way better than it is today anyway so it's a exponential curve not a linear curve and you know 10 years is a long time uh when you talk about ex any exponential anything so anyway i'm really really excited i wish i wasn't so old you know that's, the, <laughs> that's my problem I, I have so many ideas i would love to work are on. are you but, really yeah. sure you want to retire <laughs> yeah i don't really want to retire to tell you the truth uh, i i believe that uh you know the people need the opportunity to you know, kind of be the masters of their destiny. And you can't have a 65-year-old guy telling everybody what he thinks from 40 years of experience. So I've got to get out of the way for Bentley Systems, for the sake of Bentley Systems' future. But I don't really want to. You know, I really think it's a it's a great time to be a, an engineer. Yeah, it sounds like Julian's got a great job ahead of him. I, I Yes, yes, I think he does. I, and I think he will do a wonderful job of it. I have ultimate uh confidence in his abilities but i envy him you know like i, I wish it were i wish i could be the guy behind julian <laughs> <laughs> anyway we, we we must all uh get out of the way you know i'm a, I'm a grandfather you know like yeah you, you get to be old you you realize that sometimes you know the the ways that that seem obvious to someone in their 60s are not the right right answers anyway <laughs> I'm just going to ask you for one final bit of advice, though, before we head off. So before we finish, could you do you have any advice for the architecture, engineering and construction industries in terms of technology adoption, the challenges they face ahead? What do you think they should do differently than they already do? Well, I've, I've said one thing over my entire career about, you know, my advice to people hearing, you know, uh, con new concepts is, look, embrace change. You know, there is a natural, uh, a natural human tendency towards resisting something that is different because they're, you know, different things are not always better. But almost always the way that, you know, big problems get solved is small changes, lots of individual small changes. And so we need lots of individual small changes. And unless people are willing to accept, okay, just because we've always done something doesn't mean we always have to do something the way we've done it in the past. And just, you know, I just think to myself, embrace change, embrace change, like it's software. 
every tool I use today is completely different than it was, you know, f even five or, or 10 years ago. But I never liked any of them when they were new. And they're, they're <laughs> all uh, natural to me now. So anyway, em embrace change. And I don't think that it, it, you can't go wrong by embracing change. Like I said, not all change is good. But when the good change happens, it will make your your problems seem simpler. Brilliant. <laughs> so thank you very much. That's just about all we've got time for today. I'd like to wish you all the best for your retirement as you embrace that change. I'm sure it <laughs> won't be the end of patents, bearing your name, because you strike me as one of life's problem solvers. So join us again soon for another episode of the Engineers Collective. Thank you very much for having me, Claire. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engineers Collective, the podcast by New Civil Engineers. Don't forget to give us some feedback by leaving a review and share this podcast with your colleagues by visiting newcivilengineer.com forward slash podcast. We'll be back soon with more guests and insight here on the Engineers Collective.